to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 81. And we have a truly fascinating interview for you here in the shape of Professor Callum McRae. Callum has been based in Boston in the States for more than 30 years and is Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is also, and I'll need to take a deep breath here, Vice Chair for Innovation in the Department of Medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, an Associate Member at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, and a Principal Faculty Member at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. What all of that boils down to is that this GP's son from the Isle of Skye is a physician and a scientist who is extraordinarily influential and well-connected in Boston's buoyant life sciences, medical and technology sectors. And in this interview, he casts an expert eye over what makes these sectors tick, how they compare to Scotland and the scope for transatlantic collaboration. My interview was originally recorded on the 30th of March 2022 as part of the Q event organised by the Scottish Business Network and supported by the Scottish Government to help build Scotland's tech ecosystem. I began by asking Callum about growing up on Sky. If you enjoy this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice. So, um, good morning, everybody. Um, thanks, Fraser. My, um, so, I, I grew up, as you said, on Sky. My father was a GP on the island, so I was pretty heavily immersed in uh, uh, medicine from a very early stage. Um, I was very fortunate uh, to have really uh, amazing teachers, great um, uh, colleagues in, in high school, and developed a, a very early interest in experimental science in that setting. Um, and was encouraged to um, proceed to try and uh, do that for the rest of my life. So most of uh, most of my passions, I think, came from those early years uh, doing um, experimental biology on the slopes below the old man of Storr on the Isle of Skye. So. <laughs> it's a lovely image. Now, we're going to focus, uh, as I say, primarily on your work today and your perspective on what's happening in terms of life sciences in, in Boston, Scotland, and beyond. However, could you explain to us your, your career path from Scotland to the US and maybe pick up on one or two, three, one or two of the, the pivotal points along the way? Yeah, I, I really, again, you know, benefited, I think, from the breadth of the Scottish education system, really uh, amazing opportunities maintained really quite late in your uh, university career. I took the opportunity to do an intercalated BSc in physiology when I was in Edinburgh. Uh, had an amazing time in in that year doing again experimental work uh, with a really rigorous um, uh, approach not only from the science colleagues but also from my uh, medical colleagues as I then finished my medical training. Uh, I moved to London um, after uh, doing my initial training in Edinburgh. I moved to the Hammersmith where really science was a, an integral part of everything that was being done and then was very fortunate to do a um, series of training posts at St. George's where there was a concentration of genetic um, interest in particularly in inherited forms of heart disease uh, and vascular disease. And my mentors there, Bill McCann and John Cam, uh, suggested that I go to the US to study molecular genetics. And that was really how I sort of made the transition. I think 
uh, um, you know, very uh, broad-minded and uh, intellectually rigorous mentors from start to finish. I think that was a very useful and helpful set of examples to have in, for anybody in their early career. Could you sort of bring us up to speed then with what happened, you know, how your career developed in the States and what your, your roles and interests are today? So I uh, came to um, study molecular genetics at, at Harvard in 1990. I was fortunate to work with really two of the pioneers in the field, was then um, fortunate to marry my wife, who persuaded me to stay in the U.S., I retrained uh, in medicine at Brigham Women's Hospital and cardiology at Massachusetts General Hospital, and then worked with uh, Mark Fishman, another fantastic mentor, uh, before he went to become uh, the chief scientific officer at Novartis and did a lot of fundamental work in um, both in developmental biology and in using model organisms and drug discovery. Uh, then stayed on um, at a Mass General and faculty there for 15 years, came back to the Brigham, which is also part of the Harvard uh, uh, Hospital Network in 2009, and then became chief uh, of cardiovascular medicine there, and then subsequently have gone on to work um, as a uh, scientific uh, innovation director in the Department of Medicine at the Brigham, mainly um, uh, focusing on sort of uh, a fairly broad portfolio that goes from uh, basic discovery right the way through to uh, digital health and transformation of, of biomed biomedicine writ large. I was also fortunate enough to get um, a very large award over uh, $80 million from um, the American Heart Association from Vario Life Sciences and from AstraZeneca with additional support from Quest Diagnostics to really reimagine some of the um, mechanisms by which uh, discoveries are made and translation is accelerated. Um, and that's really been the focus um, of my work over the last five years is really re trying to reimagine that sort of end-to-end -end translational spectrum. Great, and, and in terms of moving from uh, Scotland to the US, in terms of business and research, but also life in general, what were some of the big differences that you noticed and, and how some of those differences perhaps changed over the years? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the, the things that were different about the U.S. have probably become even more emphasized in the last few years. So one of the things that was obvious very quickly arriving in the U.S. is that uh, change is really part of the way that uh, – uh, things are tested. And there was uh, really massive momentum uh, always to be thinking about uh, how to improve things. And perhaps um, a little bit less of a focus on on uh, legacy um, approaches to things. So there was, there was a dynamism um, and yet a reverence. I think Massachusetts in particular in the U.S. is, if anything, more reverent about the past, largely as a result of the history of the revolution than some of the other parts of the US. So it's a really nice balance between a respect for the, the rigor and uh, logic of everything that has gone before, but yet uh, a very clear focus on dynamic innovation and in particular, a willingness to fail. And I think uh, that's been something obviously came out of Silicon Valley very much in the, in the sort of lean models of um, uh, startup development but has really uh, become pervasive, I think, in a lot of what's happening in biomedicine and beyond, uh, even in more conservative parts of the US like Massachusetts. So it's 
it's really um, people have doubled down on that test um, and validate or test and fail uh, model. And I think it's been particularly powerful in in the last few years um, as individuals who have trained in lots of different systems have begun to converge on biomedicine. Um, so from your position over there, Callum, how would you describe some of the, the key attributes of the, the Boston, Massachusetts innovation system? And what from those, what might appeal to Scottish companies and entrepreneurs? Well, um, as I'm sure most people will know, you know Boston has this remarkable um, agglomeration of educational institutions, Harvard, MIT, Tufts, um, Boston University, Boston College. But there's also um, obviously the history of the, the major uh, academic medical centers in Boston is particularly relevant for the, the biomedical space. Uh, the deep uh, history of uh, technologic innovation and in particular, uh, some of the early focus on technological innovation in, in the defense industry was based in, in Boston. Also a, a strong track record of uh, investment uh, with um, a very broad investment community, all the way from you know, large um, traditional insurers, really, right the way down to um, uh, and venture capitalists, but with everything in between big private equity uh, firms as well. So a sort of broad um, category of investors. And then I think one of the things that's been most interesting in the last few years is that particularly as um, biomedicine is one of the areas of convergence, societal change in health and wellness being part of that. You've seen a real elevation in the Boston ecosystem because of the uh, inclusion of everything that I just said, but also uh, really uh, impressive um, migration of the major scientific efforts in most of the large pharmaceutical companies in the world are now very uh clearly concentrated in uh, the Boston area and Cambridge uh, and, and close by, and a very broad uh, biotechnology and health tech ecosystem also emerging. So there's a lot of that um, um, convergence uh, occurring in Boston. Much of it is actively encouraged by some of the, the senior leadership in the scientific institutions that I mentioned. And so there's a real impetus to begin to think about how everything really fits together. And that, that combined with you know, the test and, and validate strategy, that sort of lean approach to understanding, positioning, and fit uh, has been a really powerful growth engine in the last five to seven years. And it seems even to be accelerating further. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's quite interesting in this uh, which I think is in addition to the pharma companies being here, maybe a little bit distinct even from the from the Bay Area, is the fact that a lot of the the patients, a lot of the actual care delivery, uh, and again, this is obviously restricted to biomedicine, but I think it does have implications beyond because so much of the con convergence is happening around biomedicine, uh, is that patients are actually coming through the research system. So it's a very high volume, academic medical operation that's at the core of that. And the Mass General Brigham uh, has been really uh, an integral part of, of that innovation growth. Right. And in, in terms of the, the, your, the marketplace that you're, you're operating in, what do you think are some of the key drivers 
for success and and how do you think they maybe compare to the to what's required in the Scottish marketplace? I'm thinking of things in terms of um, you know how much is it down to um, the quality and innovation of the, the science? How much is it down to forging the right partnerships for distribution, etc.? Yeah, I, I think it's it's all of the above. I think one of the things that I see with people coming from outside is they tend to focus on one domain uh, and not on the others or less on the others. And I think the what I see in successful entities uh, as they come into this ecosystem is that they're really firing on all cylinders. They're thinking about, obviously, the quality and innovation of their primary science. That's absolutely critical. But in addition to that, they're building the right networks, both from the standpoint of developing and and uh, applying their science in a in a uh, particular market, and also the networks that you need in order to get this financed uh, in the right way with the right support. And I think what I see is that uh, oftentimes people will come with a, with a single question rather than a, an integrated long term plan. And I think um, really mapping out strategy over over a period of years, over a series of scientific and funding and implementation transitions is really important. And you know, one of the things that, and it applies to be 100% honest in, in any industry, but one of the things that I think has been particularly the problem in biomedicine is uh, a lack of focus on that implementation uh, phase. You know, you can, you can spend seven to 10 years developing a really amazing device or drug but if you haven't been planning for those seven to 10 years and how it's actually going to get into the clinic, um, then you, you do end up with a, um, a really frustrating gap. And that's much the same with lots of other technologies. I think if, you've, if you haven't uh, imagined what the end game will look like at the start, not that you're necessarily fixed on that particular model, but if you're not planning for it, the networks you're building and the people you're engaging, uh, then you end up being at a disadvantage. Now, um, there is perhaps a sense that um, the life sciences sector in Scotland has been held back by a lack of investors. How much is the success in Boston been down to the fact that you do have high levels of investors who are not, and not just the availability, but the fact they really understand the market and, and are prepared to take risks? Yeah, I think you know I've been certainly very impressed in in my career that um, you know over the last 15, 20 years, the investment community in Boston has grown substantially, but there was always deep expertise in all of the areas of technology that we're investing in. And I think that the, the breadth of the um, investor uh, base is really what uh, is critical because it gives you the right mix of expertise that you can then uh, use to drive ideas forward. On the other hand, that mix of expertise comes from the science that was here Originally, so they're not. I don't think they're completely separable, uh, but you do need, um, in order to truly accelerate um, growth and broaden uh, the uh, the base of everything that you're doing. In, in for example, the Scottish ecosystem is is not just building the scientific expertise, but then thinking about how do you um, uh, amalgamate or in, or uh, engage a broader uh, investor base as well, um, so that you're beginning to put all the pieces together. And, uh, you know, there's some, obviously some amazing Scottish investment firms. I mean, you know, Bailey Gifford, uh, folks like that are really globally renowned. But what's missing, I think, in Scotland, uh, in, in a way that is not the case here, is that sort of range of smaller uh, early stage venture capital to uh, um, 
growth stage venture capital, which is just um, so rich and deep in, in the Boston ecosystem, partly because this is where a lot of the biotech uh, and pharma is is based. But but it's also, I think, um, it's a, it's not just a consequence of it, it's a, a cause of it. So you get this virtuous cycle if you're not just driving the science, but also driving the investment. And then also, as I said, thinking about the implementation piece. And that's, as I've uh, written about in the past, I think that is something that ends up being a really important part of the Scottish ecosystem is the fact that it's a sort of single integrated um, market where societal and technological and healthcare and um, uh, a whole host of uh, investment opportunities could come together uh, and just getting some of those pieces to uh, to operate in an integrated way uh, would really, I think, go a long way to uh, elevating everything that's already very successful in the Scottish ecosystem. So, Callum, what do you think that the life science, bioscience, um, AI sector in, in Scotland could do to make itself more attractive to investors? And, and what opportunities do you see in terms of reaching out to, to Boston? Boston is is a great place to come to with ideas. As I said, I think there's a lot of um, fertile ground for um, growing, developing, growing, and and deploying really excellent ideas. I think it's it's you know there there are certainly examples in the recent past of entities coming to do that very effectively. I think one of the things, as I said a few minutes ago, that's really important is having a broad view of uh, what the landscape looks like, what the scope of what might be possible is, and in particular, what the scale of what is necessary to be successful is. And I think one of the the interesting things that sometimes you see is that people come from the outside with a smaller vision that is necessary to actually be able to engage the right network of collaborators and partners. And I think um, that's something that I think... um, is is you know often just part of of building and moving forward is is thinking what is it that I could accomplish if everything went really well and I think in general and I'm uh, probably as guilty of this as any other Scotsman you tend to always see that the possible disasters ahead of you um, being being better prepared to envisage failure. Uh, sometimes makes you try to avoid it harder. So I think actually uh, testing and improving is is the the thing that I've probably the, the thing that I've learned the most from coming to the U.S. is uh, I think in in Scotland we we tend to be afraid of failure and partly because we we have a uh, a, a, a general uh, approach that's skeptical. Uh, we tend sometimes to stymie our own ideas earlier than most other people would. And lots of folks will end up um, testing things that we might not have felt were likely to succeed. And then in the course of testing them, not only find the points of failure, but also importantly, find the points for success and go on and develop really useful um, innovations and technologies. So um, I think it's attitudinal, but but that's probably an overgeneralization based on a uh, antiquated view of Scotland from 30 years ago. The reality is, in practical terms, it's getting to the right size, getting to the right point, inflection point in your growth so that you can be truly competitive in what is a very rapidly moving landscape. And I think that's what I would advise people to do. Look for 
complete whole solutions, whole products, rather than single um, tools or technologies. I think that's what ends up being the most successful in, in the ecosystems that uh, I see around me, at least. Um, now, together with Ian, we had a, a, a brief chat last week, and, and you picked on a couple of areas in which you felt Scottish businesses were possibly missing a trick in terms of how they can ramp up their, their appeal. Um, one was around education, one was around the Enlightenment. Would you like to sort of expound on that? Yeah, of course. So I think one of the things that's um, super interesting is, is how um, modern companies are now beginning to, and even uh, big academic entities like uh, Harvard, you know, rethink what you need in terms of education for the workforce of the future. And, um, you know, you have to be careful you don't um, overcompensate in one direction or another. But I think the there's clearly a recognition that in an age of convergence, you need people who are able to bridge between different skill sets. And so, for example, um, uh, even my former mentor, um, uh, Mark Fishman, who came back from Novartis to Harvard, he, he started a, a dual master's course in life sciences and in and MBA and business, an MBA uh, um, in, uh, at the same time, because he, he felt that in large uh, convergent organizations, that was a real need. And I think we're seeing that uh, already. People are um, dropping from... Uh, trajectories that in the past would have gone on to doctoral science uh, or, or other doctoral pursuits and are now going and getting broader experience in a series of different startups and then taking that to large companies. And Scottish education is, is by definition, um, really since the Enlightenment, very, very broad. Um, I also think the other thing that's super important is, is a critical aspect that came out of the Enlightenment is this uh, depth of, of uh engagement between science and society. And I think one of the real advantages that Scotland has is that the social elements of innovation and, and technology and healthcare and, uh, and science are actually uh, in the same system as the uh, non-social elements. And so that type of end-to-end -end solution is something that everybody is looking for worldwide. And you know, there, are, there are places that have really to greater or lesser extent, leverage that incredibly well, like Singapore. And I think Scotland has not really um, thought about that in uh, as a selling point in the way that it seems from the outside, at least. You know that that amazingly um, uh, compact um, everything from big cities to really rural uh, areas, all of the the innovation and, and science, um, plus all of the societal. Uh, um, integration present really at the start. And I, I don't see that being exploited in the same way that it, it has been by other areas. And then on top of that, I think one of the big ticket items that's become really important is thinking about um, how to green everything that we do. And Scotland is really a, um, a, a global leader in that. And it hasn't really transferred out of the energy sector in a way that um, you would have expected where that to have happened in some other places. So I think um, those are the things that I think have um, have surprised me watching Scotland from the outside. Uh, I still think it's an amazing place uh, to innovate, to uh, build and um, do business. But uh, I think it, it, it that combined, everything that already exists combined with uh, a sense of how 
whole integrated solutions uh, are going to be really an important piece of the future. And then also scale. Uh, I think those are the things that I see that are absolutely central to being successful in, in the innovation systems that, that certainly have emerged in the US uh, and elsewhere. Right, I've got a, a really big question here, which you could probably hold an entire conference on, series of conferences. I mean, we're obviously living at a time of, of you know, huge disruption, the, the pandemic, climate change, potential for of World War Three, uh, the energy crisis and so on. Callum, are you able to throw any light on how you think that might impact uh, on the way innovation occurs? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, it's pretty clear um, from, from you know, historical perspective that uh, periods of major transition like this do fuel remarkable periods of innovation as well. Um, we're already seeing that even coming out of the pandemic. Um, massive changes in the rate of adoption of virtual technologies. Um, you know, things that the medical profession basically said could not be done, they would disrupt the patient-physician relationship forever are now basically being done at scale. Um, and I think those types of uh, transitions are, are the case in, with almost every challenge that you listed. Um, you know, sadly, world wars are, are unfortunately a major uh, source of technologic innovation. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come to that, but the reality is that even um, in the last few weeks, you know, you've, you've begun to see how asymmetry and technological capabilities can really change um, the way in which um, traditional wars uh, take place. I think that's going to be the case in, in many other areas of innovation. And you can, you can see it happen already. Just even how people are thinking about drones um, has changed based on their utility in, in, in an obvious way in Ukraine. So I, I, I'm, you know, I'm uh, uh, embarrassed um, by the fact that as a society, we still think that's a way of solving problems, i.e. wars. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the challenges that it drives do actually, um, I think, bring us to periods of really rapid innovation. So I think you're going to see uh, a very dramatic change in, in how um, technology is deployed, uh, how it's thought of in multiple fields. I think, you know, you alluded in your question to, to climate change. You know, the, I was reading this morning in the Financial Times that uh, Germany is basically trying to reduce their dependence on, on uh, gas pipe from, from Russia by 40% before uh, the end of the summer. That's a, a transition that could have a major effect on climate change, but would, would have been unimaginable you know, six weeks ago. So those are the types of things that I think we'll see um, coming in lots of other areas. And, and uh, healthcare, um, um, it's already happening. I'm sure it'll happen in, in uh, very many other areas of human endeavor. Great. I think that was a, an, an excellent attempt to, to cover such a wide range there in that answer, Callum. And now the, the, the media is kind of painting this... Um, this picture of the future where our, our sort of doctors will be robots and our um, medicines will be bespoke to our DNA sequences and so on with doses determined by wearable technology. I mean, you know far more about all this kind of stuff than we do. What's, what's your vision of how the future may pan out in that area? Well, I'm, um, I'm struck by the fact, um, and this is, this is not my observation, but one from uh, 
a, f- a fellow uh, Celt, uh, Garrett Fitzgerald, who said, uh, um, precision medicine is is the future of medicine and it always will be. The, the reality is that many of the things that we are saying are just around the corner. We've been saying for a long time have been just around the corner. I think, uh, I do think you're, you're 100% right. There's going to be a dramatic wave of technological innovation. But the reality is the problems and the challenges are so enormous that it's going to need a sustained effort over hundreds of years to get to the point where we're really doing some of the things that people imagine. On the other hand, there are lots of things that can be done immediately that will have major impact in particular on uh, the uniformity and access, uh, uniformity of care and access to care. Uh, that really has been a, a major barrier in the in the developed and developing world. Uh, the cost of care, I think, uh, can be dramatically reduced. All of these things, I think, will start to be impacted fairly quickly by some of the technologies that you point out. But uh, the reality is that um, we know so little in biomedicine that uh, I think it'll take a long period of, of deep innovation uh, to really build the generalizable insights that you need in order to be able to truly deliver precision medicine. That's not to say that I don't think that genetics and genomics are not powerful ways of identifying new drugs. Um, you know, remarkably, uh, some of the CRISPR technologies are really just uh, accelerating so quickly how we identify uh, disease genes, how we identify therapeutics, um, platform therapeutics have, have begun to transform how we imagine uh, treating diseases, building therapies and treating diseases. Um, but I still see uh, a lot of the core problems are the, the, the information content in medicine is so poor compared with um, most other fields uh, that it actually will take quite some time before we have the inputs that could really benefit from uh, AI and robotics. Medicine has been hyper-local by design for a thousand years. And almost everything else uh, in our uh, lives was systematized largely by global trade and commerce. And medicine has sort of resisted that with the exception of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and I think it's going to take quite a while to break down those challenges. On the other hand, um, the technologies that you describe are beginning to do that. And so I think it's a very exciting period for innovation uh, and deployment of technology in medicine. I just think it's more of a, um, a problem. Um, uh, it's more of a challenge than we perhaps immediately imagine. Although, as I said at the start of my answer, uh, we've been saying it's just around the corner for a long time. And that gives you some sense of how big the unknown unknowns are in, in biology. Very interesting. And finally, um, perhaps particularly for any younger life science, medical engineering people listening in, um, why would you say that this is indeed, is this a good time for them to become involved in innovation and take their ideas, their research, perhaps, you know, to Boston? Uh, And what parting advice would you give to anybody who's interested in that that prospect? Well, 100%. I think, you know, I hope... Um, if nothing else, I've conveyed the fact that I, I really think that um, biology and, and life sciences are really an integral part of innovation in almost every sphere. I mean, you can imagine lots of ways in which 
life sciences could be used in in a wide variety of settings that they're not currently used, whether it's agriculture, not that they're not used there, but they could their their utility could be dramatically increased all the way through to traditional biomedicine. Uh, so this is an exciting time to have those types of skills and to bring them into an innovation ecosystem like Boston's where they you know, really can be widely deployed. Uh, I also think that, um, as I said, and as you uh, dragged out of me over the last few questions, this is a particularly exciting time to be doing it because of the inflection points that we see around us and because of the remarkable uh, dynamism in, in the ecosystem in Boston in particular. So there are, you know, people are beginning to think about how we can use biological um, inferences to even design uh, our transport systems. That type of cross-fertilization is really happening in real time here. I think the one thing um, you want to be sure about is not being afraid to fail. Um, come early and um, and fail a bit. Um, I think that's one of the most useful things that I learned um, when I came here. And then the other thing that I think is super important is a direct inference of uh, the innovation that's possible with um, data science, deep learning, and um, really any technological advance that might be part of the, the fourth industrial revolution is scale. And so I think one of the things that I would challenge anybody who's coming into any ecosystem at the moment to think about is what are the plans to to get to scale because that's where you start to see the the, the data drive the innovation and I think building those types of um, in a virtuous innovation cycles is really something that folks who have a broad educational base and uh, the uh, Scottish um, work ethic and uh, ideation will be very well placed to to leverage for the future. Professor Callum McRae, thank you so much for your time and for a very interesting interview. Thanks also to you for listening. We'll be back again soon with another episode. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.